This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hey, that's pretty good. The Raptors win 111 to 106 versus the Charlotte Hornets. Missing some players over there, of course, but also the Raptors missing some players on their own end. Most notably, of course, Scotty Barnes, who maybe is out for the rest of the season, maybe not, but was not a factor in this game, obviously. And the Raptors win largely behind, I think, a lot of their automatic sets that they like to slip into with their delay action between Jakob Pertl and Kelly Olenek. Jakob obviously dislocating his pinky finger, not coming back, Kelly slipping into that role. And I think like just the hmm, the rim pressure of RJ Barrett was extremely important in this game. His numbers were awesome tonight, 23 points, nine rebounds, five assists, and Emmanuel quickly finishing with 22 points and 11 assists. And I think in this game as well, we're looking at Emmanuel, who's able to play make against a lot of the blitzing from the Hornets. And that blitzing is coming because they fear his prowess as a shooter. So the Raptors able to, I think, get enough offense in this game, clamp down on the wings often enough and play, you know, a pretty shorthanded Hornets team, not a great Hornets team, a team that's behind them in the standings, which is not exactly, you know, there's not there's not a lot of teams behind the Raptors in the standings. And they're able to win this game. Now, I know some people are definitely going to come out on the side of like, well, Scotty's injured. This team doesn't have much of a ceiling. Maybe we need to be taking that nosedive farther down the standings. I understand it. I get that. But I think that the Raptors did a lot of fun stuff on the court tonight. And we're here to talk about that. And they won. And there's a reason after games we say, hey, that's pretty good if they win, and hey, that's pretty bad if they lose. I understand the larger machinations are going on. Um, Ochai Abaji stepped into the starting lineup tonight, and I saw people talking about it as if this was like a big win for Ochai. I thought that this was like a very underwhelming game. I, I know, well, even here, Water Polo Quaker just said beside for his one for seven from three, Abaji really had a great game. I disagree, actually. I thought his his on-ball defense was pretty good. I think that he was very important, and it was obvious that he needed to close when, like, Brandon Miller and Miles Bridges are the guys creating a lot of looks on the other end of the floor. But offensively, I think Abaji, obviously, he missed his threes, but he looked really limited putting the dribble down. I know he had that one finish, that reverse underneath, but typically looked like um, overextending himself and quite limited. But um, I was going to say, I saw people talking about, like, Abaji, as like, okay, he turned the corner. I didn't see that in this game. But I don't want to start off negative, obviously. Um, ND says, didn't watch the game, but how does Oshai end with 20 shots? Well, the Raptors' half-court rating in this game was really bad. Uh, their offense overall is really limited, and they need to get offense from somewhere. And Oshai is a really willing cutter. He's a willing shooter. And when the Raptors aren't running that much initiation stuff with live ball handlers, but are instead going to a lot of delay action, for those who don't know, delay action is where uh, big man, typically Jakob Pertl or Kelly Olenek, trail the play, receive the ball above the break, and they start running dribble handoffs and split actions out of that. It's a type of offense. And Ochai is a willing cutter, was able to get downhill on some backdoor cuts. And as far as, you know, shooter, when you get downhill and teams collapse and the ball goes out to him, he's taking those shots one for seven. And also getting on the offensive glass a little bit. You know, he had four offensive rebounds. The 20 shots, some of that is comprised by like, you know, tap-ins. It's kind of like Scotty Barnes, right? Like Scotty Barnes' two-point field goal percentage is maybe a little bit uh, lower than it should be on the season and doesn't quite tell the story of his finishing talent. Because sometimes he's just like batting the ball back up against the rim and they always count those as shot attempts. So a bit of the Ochai stuff in there. And I'm actually going to take this opportunity to talk about the Ochai, the first play of the game, stepping into the Scotty Barnes role in one of these really easy looks that the Raptors have been always been able to get for Scotty 
and now Ochai. So we got the we got the book out, ready to detail a play. Okay, and this stuff is kind of based off of the um, what we see happen with Emmanuel quickly having a lot of gravity as a shooter. So and Micah Zion says, "Uh oh, he's got props." That's right. So this is the Scotty slip that Scotty has been able to work in with both Pascal, Emmanuel quickly, basically everybody. But basically, the Scotty slip is teams if they're playing high. They're playing aggressive pick-and-roll defense. And let's say, here's Emmanuel quickly above the break, right? For audio listeners, above the break, Emmanuel quickly. Ochai Abaji is coming over to set a screen. The team plays high in their coverage against the screen, which means that Ochai gets lower than the second man guarding the screen. This creates a natural position where he can seal the man behind him. Hey, everybody has seen Scotty put a guy in jail behind him, keep him there, and go get a post-entry pass. Jakob Pertle slides up and is available for an outlet pass to some degree from Emmanuel Quickly because Emmanuel Quickly can't make the overhead pass to Ochai who's sealing his man. The guy covering him, it's not as easy an angle. So IQ kind of automatically triggers to Jakob Pertle. Ochai keeps the guy on his back, keeps slipping to the rim, and Jakob, now that they've created another angle, has an easy entry pass to Ochai. That's his first play. And we can even detail half of Ochai's makes in this game, just talking about like kind of slipping to the rim in space. We'll also talk about this kind of stuff. So this is Jakob short rolling. And basically Ochai is in the corner. So that's fine. Davis Bertans is his check. We have IQ at the top running a pick and roll with Jakob Pertl. And it's really great if you can create like a drastic defensive response. And obviously IQ gets a lot of those because of his shooting gravity. And IQ receives a blitz, and that means they send two to the ball. That means Jakob Pertl is going to pop out for an over-the-top pass to short roll. He stops short. Davis Bertans gets caught in the middle, right? And Davis Bertans was wondering if he's going to tag. Since he short rolls, he's wondering if he's going to make a rotation at all. That motion into the paint creates an opportunity for Ochai to cut from the corner. And that means that Jakob, who's a pretty good passer at the center position, gets to throw a lob. We also saw, and I didn't draw this one up, but we saw we saw a play earlier in the game where the Raptors run a get action, which is where um, IQ is throwing the ball in to Jakob to immediately, immediately trigger a dribble handoff. And so they blitz that action too. Ochai is in the weak side corner on this possession, and it's the exact same problem that comes up for the Hornets defense they have to bring a guy to the ball after IQ makes the pass over the top of the blitz and then we see Jakob make that pass to Ochai in the corner and Ochai is obviously making good cuts and that's half of his makes in this game also cashed a triple but um, this is a lot of Ochai early on but at least we can use Ochai as the vehicle to explain that Jakob was really good playmaking and also that IQ was able to play make in this game and create looks pretty consistently in this game because of his shooting gravity and the fact that the Hornets were playing a really aggressive pick and roll coverage against him or just like two man screening action coverage against him because not all of these were pick and rolls. Some of these were dribble handoffs. Pun master says, please use a darker Sharpie next time. So it's easier to see 888 MJL says gold is darker. He used silver before LL. Yeah, I'm basically just using what's around the house. Uh, this belongs to a leg. So I just grabbed it. And this uh, I got from the um, the Toronto Metropolitan University journalism at the creative school. I got this when I went to do like a guest, a guest thing to talk to their sports media students. And uh, that was a fateful day. That was uh November 21st or 22nd, which obviously, for those who remember, was like a really weird night for me. <laughs> um, the Raptors, I, Cosmo here says, Jakob and Scotty are the entire Raptors defense, LOL. I don't think that's true necessarily. Um, they're definitely the best two defenders, uh, you know, and I think like some games it's Jakob, some games it's Scotty, and definitely Scotty has the sexier numbers on that end. He's just such a, you know, a big huge defensive playmaker he has the he has the big numbers of course but the Raptors I think honestly like between switching a few different actions between like blitzing at times you could look at the final play right like they switched a cup across a couple screens and Gary saw an opportunity to blitz the ball I think it was Michich on the ball um, we're looking at uh, a team that was hampered 
But of course, this isn't like this team, the Hornets, they're not world beaters. I really loved Brandon Miller's game today, like 26, 10 and three. I thought he was really impressive. His shot making has always, always been impressive to me. He floats, he gets to different spots on the floor. He's like a three level scorer. Super, super impressive. And I think that the Raptors, they flatten stuff out at the end. I was pretty surprised because when we think about the last two possessions, you had Gary Trent Jr. with the steal on the one after they switched across a couple and then did a switch to blitz. And that was a great call from Gary. But before that, too, we saw we saw Miles Bridges airball just clank it off the backboard and he flattened it out against Kelly Olenek. And I don't know what the hierarchy is for the Hornets over there, but to see, you know, Brandon Miller had an isolation on Kelly. And then he like triggered a dribble handoff with um, Miles out of like, not out of the corner, but out of above the break. And that just triggered Miles into an ISO against Kelly. And Miles took like what, like an 18 footer fading to his right, which that's not his game at all. You know, the best parts of his game are when he's driving to the rim and he looked way overextended there. If I'm if I'm Brandon Miller, I want to take that shot. I want to kind of like boogie woogie into space and see um and see what uh, what's happening there. Cosmo says I'm gonna need you to talk about DJ Carton, even if it's just a sec. Yeah, I like DJ. I with those initiator or guard type guys, you always wonder with like the three point shot, and you wonder about like their creation stuff. DJ, I think, is stuck in maybe a little bit of an awkward position where the three point shot isn't at the NBA level yet but he's really crafty and creative on the inside of the arc. And he probably needs that three point shot as a swing skill to open up more avenues for him to get downhill. But I thought like the one cut he made, it was like a 45 cut into contested space. Kelly made that little lay down to him on his way through there. That was pretty nice. He gets to the floater and those shots while you don't want that to be everything. Like you don't want that to be, um, you don't want that to be everything you go to like a guy who's too reliant on floaters is really maybe not like like that might be a red flag in scouting for example um you don't want a guy going to the floater too often but it does like carton is slick and he's pretty crafty on the inside of the arc and there's some like ball pressure stuff he does defensively um we need to see more you know as nesta brings up here why is jfl behind carton and then luke uh says i like the look at dj but man they got to get jfl in here yeah i was a little bit confused about that if i hadn't been doing so much traveling the past you know day and a half i would have been at the game tonight and i likely would have asked about that um cosmo answering saying dj is a better shooter defender and passer than jfl i cannot respond to that but uh that wouldn't be my initial lean but you know cosmo you may have watched more than me to be quite honest um maybe not of jfl but of of uh carton maybe um because i'm behind on the carton i guess film uh but basically, like, why is JFL behind there? I'm not I'm not really sure. I think JFL is a like a an NBA level guard, maybe not like a good team NBA level guard, but I think he has the explosiveness. I do think he shoots the ball well enough to create some looks and to create like maybe not the the long closeouts, but like maybe like some medium sized ones, that kind of stuff. I guess we'll see more JFL in the future. You know, he did get converted and then Carton took his spot. I suppose, but yeah, maybe a bit too long on the end of bench guards. But I, I, I like Carton. I think he makes good decisions while on the floor. It's just need to see some of that skill stuff show through. And JFL, um, I also, that was one of the first things I noticed when I was, especially early on in the season, advocating for him to be converted at some point was I think that he has a great sense for when to cut and where to cut. And, uh, you know, it's the shot making that has to come along. Uh, the defender stuff, though, It'd be pretty easy for me to believe, as Cosmo states, that um, Carton's a better defender than JFL. I guess we'll see. Um, kind of focus on RJ Barrett, I think, a little bit more. 10 of 16 in this game, 23 points. He did have five turnovers. Um, he was a little bit overextended there. He had five assists, nine boards, two steals. I thought he was so imperative to what the Raptors were trying to do on the offensive end. And he does sometimes make me kind of like consider and think about strength creation, especially when he has room to kind of burrow and tunnel into that left side of the court. He, if he's left alone, even with a guy who's bigger than him, if he's left alone in space, he's typically able to just bump a guy, move him out of the way. And it's not necessarily to the same, you know, strength advantage that Scotty seems to have but they do it differently that 
you know, RJ does it while moving downhill facing the basket. And Scotty typically does it kind of while veering and cascading sideways downhill. RJ does it in these straight line drives and, and Scotty does it in these bully drives. And Scotty's are probably better at creating, I think, I, I think Scotty's are probably better at creating like above the break threes and laydowns, whereas RJ, just because of like the straight line nature of what he's able to do, gets downhill and just because he creates these drastic rotations for bigs to come over to the rim and come straight over to the paint and it's all happening at once it triggers those rotations from like okay the big man is rotating over to rj the guy who's supposed to be covering the big man is no longer there so the corner pulls out of the corner to try and tag the big and rj finds it so easy to swing the ball to the corner and that can start like either a three-point shot for the corner shooter or side top side action it's really natural um advantage creation in the nba and that's great whereas like scotty does it a little bit slower and kind of like hop steps and and grinds his way into the lane which can create um, more confusion about what rotations players want to make because it's like okay, he's getting there slowly, but he's getting to a dangerous spot. Teams aren't exactly sure about their automatics, what where they're supposed to pull from. And that type of confusion, I think, is where Scotty can really wreak havoc because he's such a cerebral player and he has such great reads as a, you know, as a playmaker that in that confusion, he can create like these really unique passing windows that he can, you know, access. But RJ in this game, I think just like grinding downhill, getting to spots, you know, Cosmo says, did you realize RJ was this good of a finisher at the rim? Yeah, I, the good thing for me is like a lot of my basketball takes are cataloged either on this podcast or, you know, via my written pieces. And, you know, as soon as RJ got traded, I echoed the sentiment that I thought his finishing was going to reach an above average level with the Raptors. And that I thought like looking at the tape that he was, a much better finisher than the numbers seem to convey. And that so far that really has been the case with the Raptors. Um, he's been much more effective. And some of that, you know, I've written about this at length. If you want to go to raptorsrepublic.com and you can just click on my author name and find some of the pieces I've written. But we're looking at a guy who has more room on the left side of the court, is playing in a more, you know, a more screen heavy offense rather than, you know, a, there was a lot of isolation in New York and that doesn't really... I don't think that's exactly what RJ needs. RJ loves coming into those curved drives. He loves coming off of screens, whether it's like a dribble handoff or pick and roll. And I think that's where it's been really effective for him. Um, really, really impressed. So like you look at his rim finishing. So rookie year, 54%. Uh, sophomore season, 55%. Next year, 55%. Next year, 59%. This year, he was 57% with the Knicks. And this year he's at 71%, not accounted for this game. And that's a 26-game sample with the Knicks and a 23-game sample with the Raptors. I, I think he's done a fantastic job of getting himself into advantageous spots. I think his strength creation has been really impressive. And since the Raptors are playing kind of a more open concept where teams don't load up as much, I think he has more room to like shoulder guys out of his way and finish with his left hand than he did in New York. There's an obvious advantage there that's been really great for him. And I think that when that extra attention comes, he's been a more willing passer. You know, I wrote this big piece about his passing where I went back to look at all of them and, you know, talked about like advantage creation and advantage assists. His advantage assist rate is much higher with the Raptors than it was with the Knicks. And that speaks to, and he passes out of a higher percentage of his drives with the Raptors than he did with the Knicks. And it's not like he's scoring less on drives. Now he's shooting, I think he was shooting like below 40% on drives with the Knicks. With the Raptors, above 50%. Some of this is like a good run of form, yes, but I think this is informed by better decision-making, a more healthy offensive context, and just overall like, RJ, hell yeah, you're doing fantastic work. And in this game, I know it quickly had the late free throws. I know that quickly was, you know, had was able to draw a lot of the blitzes early on that created the short roll actions that the Raptors scored out of. But honestly, I think that RJ was the biggest driver of offense for the Raptors in this game. And I think like, you know, because quickly he relies on the defensive response. And it was nice to see him get to the line actually late when the the Hornets didn't play it straight up. They tried to play in a drop and Grant Williams was kind of on an island with quickly and quickly got to the free throw line. Really nice take there. But I think that honestly, some of quickly's playmaking was reliant on like transition 
and was reliant on, you know, these big responses from the defense. Kudos to him. But as far as like the half court, I think that RJ was the biggest motivator of the Raptors' success there. And I like I I'm impressed with RJ. The five turnovers is a bit too much. It's easy to see why he can get overextended, especially if he's seeing a lot of different responses at the point of attack. But RJ in this game, like he's so good at tunneling to the bucket. He's been able to finish there. He goes three for six from downtown tonight, like quickly goes two for seven. It's not often that RJ is going to outdo quickly from behind the three point line. But this is a game where he does. Right. You know, it's like a hell of a game. I can't wait to talk about Grady, by the way. Jacob Tarasov says, I love Dick. Grady, another really fun game. And that's honestly my favorite. Like, this this speaks to the Raptors, I guess, overall offensive ethos. And, um, or here's a question. Antoine Rose says, why does it seem like the Toronto media or people like Penser doesn't like RJ? Uh, I don't know. I Like, I famously say, I don't pay much attention to... Uh, what other people like I I don't know in my spare time it's not my job to like pay attention to what other people say I do my own analysis and it's here um, so I don't know if Pensair doesn't like RJ I don't know if Toronto media doesn't like him but I like RJ um, there was there was a I talked about this on one of the other podcasts where someone said um, that I like narrative drivel about my analysis of RJ which I reject of course but I, I don't know what other people are saying all I know is that I, I liked RJ's game tonight I've really really liked RJ's decision-making offensively as a Raptor. I've been super impressed. And then, you know, on top of that, I think that there's, he's underwhelmed defensively, but basically everybody has on this Raptors team in this stretch over the past however long. Um, But back to that one play, you know, the Raptors are running delay action. They run a split action with Kelly on ball, which is a really easy thing. Like they have, um, I believe it's Gary, and quickly running a split action. And that puts the defense in like a response where, okay, are we going to guard the rim on this split action or are we going to kind of guard the three-point shot? And so they overload on Gary expecting like that pop out of the split action and quickly just curls right down into the lane. Kelly's able to make a bounce pass. They have to have that big drastic rotation from the corner, quickly goes up. It's a wrap, left-handed pass, swings it to the corner. And Grady cans like a just a rainbow three-pointer. He bangs that thing like he was born to do it. And really, really nice play. I also really like the wrinkle that the Raptors are running where I think a lot of times teams don't want to get like to the mid-range shot on split actions. And Grady, the one time he took it and he got front rim, he didn't make it. But I really like that. Um, I like the willingness to take a mid-range jumper out of the split action where he curls middle and he's like, okay, what am I going to do with this? If he can make those, which I think Grady can, he's a very diverse shot maker, and I think will be increasingly so as he goes into the you know the future of his career. That's the hope, anyway. He's a young kid at this point in time; like he's hardly twenty. Um, but he curled middle, and I I expect him to be able to do that. And I think that's a really unique counter, and especially since teams typically guard like the rim or they guard you know the three point line. When you're really savvy about getting the ball, especially as a guard or a wing from like 15 feet to 10 feet, or maybe even like, you know, 17 to like 10 feet working to get the ball there, teams have a really tough time of like loading up on that soft middle part of the court, right? And Grady, I think it will open up as he continues his career avenues to be a playmaker. And we actually saw like the ball go baseline and this wasn't Grady, but you know, RJ makes this 45 cut where she has to like add a bit of a curl to it to create a passing lane. And he's able to score late in game. I think that was the before the Raptors went on their like three minute drought of not scoring a basket. It was because RJ made a great cut to the middle of the floor. Everyone thinks you have to make a cut all the way to the basket. But if you're a good finisher and you know how to use your steps in your dribble, catching the ball at 16 feet can be just as advantageous. And we saw RJ like catch at like I don't know, 14 feet, you know, and analyze where he is on the floor, see how the defensive response is to him, put the ball down, get there, and it's a layup. And I think Grady will have lots of opportunities to do that out of some of those curls and split actions. And so Grady in this game finishes 4-7. He's 3-5 from downtown, 11 points, four boards. He's got a keen sniffer, man. I've talked about this, you know, before he got drafted. I'll pat myself on the back again. Oh, just as a heads up, I'll be co-hosting the Raptors show 
um, tomorrow and Tuesday, along with Will, which is cool. Um, bit of a nice career thing for me. But um, that's kind of a segue to like, I was doing Blue Jays talk. I was a guest on there with Blake the day of the draft. And I really advocated for the Raptors to like, if Grady drops, that would be the one. Because I had heard and reported that Grady had done a couple workouts with the Raptors and that Kobe Bufkin had done, you know, a couple workouts with the Raptors. And I was like, well, if there's interest there, I love Grady as a prospect. A lot of the scouts I talked to loved him as a prospect before the draft and at Summer League when I was kind of checking in around the league at that point in time. And to see him kind of like flowering now is pretty good because he did have a really tough start to his career shooting the ball. You could see so much of the latent stuff too. Like obviously there, obviously there's like a lot of room for him to exhibit what he's good at. And there's, you can do a million different things on the court at any point in time. And, you know, that's kind of like Steph Curry had this really great speech about like the worst thing you can do is hold the ball because there's so many things to do off ball as an NBA player that drag and pull the defense and create responses and Grady, so much of what he does is kind of under that ethos of like, what am I doing when I don't have the ball? And that kind of stuff really, really is, you know, it multiplies exponentially when you hit those shots. And so for Grady, who's probably close to shooting, like if he's not at 39%, he's probably at like 38.5%, you know, as far as a three-point shooter this season, to see him multiply and add to what guys are doing because of his gravity and to see that now that gravity is being rewarded with like shot making. It's fun. And and also to see him like navigate the defensive side of the floor with a headiness. Pretty good. Um, in this game, you know, he's a minus two, but I thought he gave really good minutes. You get 24 minutes. That's really a sweet spot. I think Grady can look a little bit gassed when he starts creeping closer to 30. But you'd really hate to see him play like less than 20 in any game the rest of the season. Like get those minutes up. If he hits the rookie wall, whatever, that's that's what it is. You work on conditioning, you work on the body over time, but you want to see it. And everybody wants to see Grady get minutes, perform, and he just has been. I think it was Keeks, she tweeted out, I think it's 12 games in a row where he's hit a three, which is tied for third most by any rookie this season. I, I assume Jordan Hawkins is up there. I, I don't know who else would be up there at this point in time, maybe like Chet or something like that, but... He's been awesome. And in this game, I thought Grady was really impressive. He has tremendous feel for the game. Um, I, I've, it's, he's been my favorite thing to watch lately, honestly. Really, really impressed with him, how he navigates the court. Um, he, he just really happy about that. The rest of the shooting guard stuff, Ochai kind of fits in as a shooting guard, and we spent a lot of time on Ochai early on. So let's talk about Gary. Gary in this game, honestly had a contact layup in transition that he made big time. Hell yeah. Um, he also had the steal at the end of the game before his layup. Big time. Three steals in this game. His ball pressure was needed and was effective against, you know, a, a Hornets team that was a little bit limited as far as on-ball creators. Um, Gary can kind of overwhelm at times, and he was able to in this game. Goes three to six from downtown. I think this was a really nice Gary game. Some games, you're like, damn. It's, it's not looking that great. Some games you're like, this guy makes a lot of sense on this roster. He connects a few different, like, he him being there is really important to making other types of skill sets work. And in this game, it seemed really, really inherent. I don't know what the future holds for Gary and the Raptors, but this was a nice game for him. Jordan Wara, uh, 11 points, four boards, five of eight from the field in pretty short order. And a lot of it, I think, was self-created as well. You know, getting to the floater, getting to the rim, um, cashing the one three off of RJ's penetration. I think that kind of stuff is really, really nice. Um, and as far as, you know, the thing is like Jordan, the big in and out in transition, in and out with the left, keeping it with the left, contest all the way up at the rim, has to extend high for like a really high finish, makes that. He has, he has ball skills, really, like not basketball skills, but like on ball skills, he has like a, a pretty useful handle. He can shoot the ball out of motion. You know, it's maybe the playmaking is a more limited than people would want. But as far as like Jordan overall, I think he definitely has utility. I think that he's like, I think he's the stopgap 
like I I wrote about this, but I think Gary probably doesn't come back as a Raptor. I think that like the two guard position probably is occupied by like Grady and Wara. That's that's my expectation for it, honestly. And Grady, even when I wrote that, Grady was just starting to kind of like take off. Now, you know, you wonder if Grady might not even need a stopgap really, but they might just be like, Wara is a voluminous, you know, bench score or something like that over the the next year of basketball. I'm not really sure. YG7 says between RJ Ochai and Grady, who do you think has the highest ceiling? <laughs> Honestly, this a lot of the scouts I talked to, maybe not a lot, three or four of the scouts I talked to said that they thought that Grady was going to be a top five player in the draft. And uh, I liked that. You know, I did, I did that, um, I did that mock draft with Mac. I think it was myself, Curly, Trey, and Mac. And I picked Grady at five for the Pistons because I was like, I love what Grady does. I think he'd be so interesting next to like Jaden and Cade and and Duran and those types of guys. And honestly, like, I think probably, ah, God, I don't know. Because RJ does a lot of things really well and Grady is still just like picking it up. But I think RJ probably has the highest ceiling ceiling because if rj like the things that rj has been able to do on offense just quickly becoming like a plug and play guy doing it efficiently has been really impressive i've seen responses to some of my like rj positivity you know some people talk about like empty stats scoring on a bad team i get it but i think there's usefulness there i think that there's utility there and i think rj if he was able to find his way still at 23 years old if he's able to find his way to more impact defensively and you, as we can see with like Grady paying attention and reading the game defensively is really important and an easy, easy way to find your way to impact. I think RJ has the highest ceiling. Um, who's the best player when like Grady is 26 and RJ's 28. It would not surprise me if it were Grady. It wouldn't at all, honestly, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was RJ either. Ochai, I don't think is in the conversation there. I don't think Ochai is um, relatively close to RJ or Grady in terms of like, you know, a prospect. Um, Jingpeng says, or Yingpeng, uh, sorry if I didn't pronounce that correctly. Excited for RJ this summer and the Olympics. Feel like it'll be really good for him developmentally. Yeah, I thought I was pretty disappointed with RJ's process on Team Canada. You know, during FIBA this past summer, I watched all those games. You know, I did analysis on quite a few of them. RJ got himself into trouble a lot of times with the live dribble in a way that he just hasn't been doing it with the Raptors. Like RJ doesn't get himself into trouble that much with the Raptors. He has a pretty good idea of when he's attacking one-on-one, two-on-one, or like one verse two and one verse three. And that's been a big weakness of his since he's been like in the NBA is like not having this, not having the right idea of when to attack and not being able to like mix and match properly. So, you know, I don't know. I I'm excited for it. I think that, um, I think that he was, I think that he was underwhelming. I think he's been overwhelming as a Raptor and I hope he's overwhelming and impressive with, um, you know, team Canada this summer, Jingpeng. Thank you for writing in. Um, you know, Coco says, uh, he was stressful this summer. I think that's correct. There was, there was a little bit of aspect of like you, clench when when he was doing something but i don't find that to be the case on the raptors very often and nd says honestly with some outlier development mostly on the handle i think grady can be one of the best second side players in the league could be an all-star with that development yeah i i feel hard pressed to say all-star for guys just because it's still 12 players the talent level in the league is so insane like darius garland isn't an all-star to me, that's nuts. That is crazy. Darius Garland is such an all-star guard. He's able to do so many things on the court. That's just an all-star to me. And he doesn't make it. It's so hard to be an all-star. So I don't know about like all-star or accolades for Grady, but as far as what you're saying, you know, I talked what you're saying, Andy, about him being one of the best second side players in the league. I agree with that. And that was part of like the the scouts I talked to you know, some of the coaches I talked to about Grady, everybody seemed to like echo those sentiments. And of course, Bobby had a very apt comment right after they drafted him. They talked about, you know, I, I don't remember the exact quote, I'm paraphrasing for what it's worth, but 
he mentioned that Grady, as far as like off-ball players, they considered him in his own league. And like, it's true, Grady, as far as you put him in positions where there's a decision to be made as an off-ball guy, when to cut, if he gets the ball, what position is he in? Is he in a two-on-one? Does he have a four-on-three? What is the shape of the four? What is the most optimal read? He is so, like such a high percent of the time, making optimal reads. And I just, he, he's been he's been so good. And to see him like playing at this level in the rookie year after the start that he had, really, really encouraging. Um, Luca says, I think when we say all-star, it's all-star caliber, not so much an actual appearance. appearance. And then Andy says, yeah, mostly Luca, all-star impact. Yeah, I... All-star impact is hard for me to quantify, I guess, because it's like Joe Johnson was an all-star scoring like 14 points per game when Kyle Lowry wasn't, maybe, I think. And like Kobe made an all-star season in his second season of his career where he was scoring like 15 points on like, what, 41% shooting? All-star is, yeah. All-star impact, sure. I Basically, what I would say to that is like, I expect Grady to be very good, like a high-level starter. And a high-level starter sometimes can make an all-star game but there's so many high-level starters now in the NBA that you're like, I don't even know. Scotty was averaging what, like 21, eight and six. And he had, he squeaked into the game, man, 21, eight and six. And it wasn't like crazy efficiency, but it was certainly good enough. It wasn't like DeJounte Murray lead guard efficiency. It was like, God damn, man. And he barely got in. And there's a lot of good players that just don't get in, you know? Um, statistics like obviously statistics people have more stats these days like i don't know if across the board if like 26 points per game is equivalent to like 22.5 in 2011 or something like that but my god man it's there's so many good players the fact that scotty put up those like gob smacking statistics and he just barely squeezed in it makes it it makes me reassess like how in the hell does anybody get into this game you know, Raptors fan says Jamal Murray still never made an all-star. Yeah. YG7, that's a great, uh, great question. Can you see Grady averaging 25 and 5? Honestly, that's such a vaunted statistic just because, like, we were – people still think of stats, I think, mostly as, like, 25 and 5 is crazy. I think that's so doable for Grady in a season. And that's, like, 25 and 5 doesn't put you in the all-star game for what it's worth. Like, it just won't. You're not going to be in the All-Star game at 25 and 5. Um, but Grady, I think there's a season where he could have 25 and 5, honestly. Um, yeah, he's he's very impressive. I'm obviously high on Grady, that kind of stuff. But yeah. And and Shun Lao says uh, a Desmond Bain type All-Star. But Desmond Bain hasn't even made the All-Star team. Right? Like, he averaged 21, 5, and 4.4. And he didn't make the all-star game. He didn't make it this year because he got injured, obviously, to some degree. But he's averaging 24.4, 5.3 assists, 4.6 rebounds. The amount of talent in this league is so absolutely absurd. And Grady is one of those very talented players. I'm, exci I'm excited to see what it all ends up as. But, yeah, there's, a, there's definitely stats are big. And he says, ooh, this is random, but what's the most dunks you think Grady can get in the season of well? I have no idea. I like I get it. That's a funny question. I feel like Grady probably let's say like 35. Cause transition plus backdoor cuts cuts plus whatever. Um uh YG7 says, Do you see Gordon Hayward as a fair comp to Grady? No, I, I don't consider them similar at all, especially since Gordon even coming out of what Butler what it was, um, was a guy who could create with strength and was a guy who was very comfortable in the middle of the floor. If there's one place that Grady is the least comfortable, it's operating like with, you know, physicality and in the middle of the floor. And Gordon Hayward, you know, he wasn't always this type of player, but especially he developed into a guy who was like, I think honestly, Gordon Hayward and Pascal Siakam, as far as like as create as creating looks, those guys are fairly similar in the types of shots that they create. I don't think uh, Gordon and Grady are very similar at all. And I think that's that falls under the like white guy thing. But like I get it. You know, like white guys are white guys in the NBA. There's a lot of overlap in like white guys, especially if they're not a big man. They achieve things with certain skill sets 
and certain body types, and it can look very similar. However, I don't think uh, Gordon Hayward and Grady are very similar. Um, I think Grady is a very unique player, to be quite honest with you. Um, and, you know, I think I think he's very uh, unique. And I, on this podcast, very often say how much I hate um, comps because I think that comps consistently, like the reason why players succeed things aren't in comparison or they aren't like, it's because of small things. You know, I talked about this before, but like, you know, Skyfall, he's a a Korean MD and he works for a sports team over in in Korea. And he, you know, did this Twitter thread where he was talking about the best types of rollers to pair with DeJounte Murray because of DeJounte Murray, the type of pocket pass that he likes to make and the type of pocket pass that allows for him to get into his pull-up and like success on the NBA floor because of how good defenses are and how good players are. It can be that little is like, and that's why I talk about how, you know, I think Nicholas Claxton would be a really bad fit for Emmanuel quickly. I think Jakob Pertl as a player is a way better fit for quickly. And it's the small things. It's not just like, it's a good big man. It's a good guard. They create looks. It's like, no, it's like the minutia and stuff like that. So I always hated comps because I feel like comps always oversimplify. And I think people are just thinking about like, you know, the aesthetic of the end game. Like what does the flick on the jump shot look like? And then there's a comp there. But truthfully, I I really don't see much overlap between many players, especially now, nowadays. There's just, everyone is so unique. And I think people realized how, you know, that, that Steph Curry thing that I talked about, like how many different ways there is to succeed on the court. And like Dean Wade plays way different than Maxi Kleba. But if you just like watch them move through like a foggy lens, you're like, that's the same guy. It's like a six, nine white guy who like moves the ball pretty well and can shuffle his feet better than you thought, you know? But yeah, I'm, I'm a, a, I'm fighting. I fight the comp mobile. Um, my friends know this very well about me. Um, Lucas says, what's holding you back on Ochai self-creation? I see a pathway for a three and D athlete, even though the shot isn't quite pretty. Well, to get to the three aspect of it, he just has to shoot the ball better. And like, so here's the thing. Ochai is almost 24 years old, right? In his career, we have 35% three-point shooter, 33% three-point shooter. And this year, he's shooting what? Or sorry, we have in his rookie season, 35%. And this season, he's at 33%. Um, He also, he played all four years in college at Kansas. He was a really great shooter. I think he was in his junior year. I think he made 38% on like seven attempts per game. And in his senior year where they won... I think he won like the tournament player of the player of the tournament. Um, I think it was like 6.5 three-point attempts per game. He shot 41%. He was a heat pump in college. He just has not shot the ball very well from three. And then as far as like the self-creation, I just don't think it's there. Like I I, I think that Ochai is not big enough um, for the how he succeeds. I don't think he's flexible enough or dynamic enough on the dribble. And I don't think his handle gets him to very dangerous spots. I, I just don't think there's I just don't think there's really any route to like self-creation for Ochai. And for him to be a three and D guy, I do think the defensive stuff is there. I think that he has a great sense of what he's able to do defensively. I think he like gives a shit on that side of the floor. And like his technique can be pretty good getting around screens. I think that he slides um not as well as one might hope, but I think he's really effective as a turn and chase defender, which is what he did on that big Miles Bridges block. There's stuff to, you can like a lot of stuff defensively. He just has to hit the three-point shot. And basically that's it. Like Ochai will be a good NBA player if he hits the three-point shot. If he doesn't, he probably doesn't play that long in the league. And that's that's what it is. It's a swing skill. And for a lot of guys it is. But Ochai, he has to like hit his open threes. And that's kind of, that's where it's at. Has to hit his open threes. And then on top of that, if he wants to expand further, hit motion threes, make better reads against the long closeouts, all that kind of stuff. Lucas says, was that worth a late first? Right after the trade, I posited that the first was more so for Kelly than it was for Ochai. Now, you you can slice it anyway. They both came back in the trade. But um, I had, I, it wasn't a home run, that trade, at all, I don't think. But 
I mean, I was at the press conference when Masai was there. He came out and was like, we're not using all these picks. So I guess they wanted to get, you know, Kelly Olenek in-house, who they're probably going to re-sign, take a swing on Ochai, see how it goes. Like, I'm, I'd be very happy to be wrong. I'm coming across as, like, pessimistic on some of Ochai's, like, creation, certainly. And the numbers don't indicate anything big on as far as, like, three-point shooting. I wish they did. I would love to be able to get excited about Ochai in that way. But, you know, I watch some of his film with the Jazz, and then, you know, I watch these games with the Raptors. There's just like, mm, there's just not a lot there. And I'd love to be wrong. Like, I'd love to come on this podcast in like a year and a half and be like, yeah, my analysis of Ochai was like way off. But as far as this kind of stuff, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not left expecting a ton from Ochai offensively. I would love to one day start expecting that kind of stuff. But you know, was it worth it? You know, YG7 says a late first for a lottery pick in a draft we traded out of. I'd say so. Don't, it doesn't make sense to me to like view him as a lottery pick. Like he's Ochai Abaji. That's who he is. What he can do on the NBA court is what he can do. Like RJ Barrett is not a third overall pick with the Raptors. He was, he's RJ Barrett who does these things and he comes over in a trade for OG Ananobi. And the Raptors treated it initially like Emmanuel Quickly was like the big get in that trade. The league respond reacted like Emmanuel Quickly's the guy, and Emmanuel Quickly wasn't like a lottery pick, right? I don't think that stuff's important. Um, if they redrafted right now, Ochai probably wouldn't have gone in the lottery in that draft. So like that, those types of things I don't think matter that much. You know, the Raptors won, you know, a championship with no lottery picks, right? Like I'm pretty sure at least in the rotation, like even Kawhi Leonard was like 15th and Kyle Lowry was, you know, not, not a lottery, lottery pick. Pascal wasn't nobody. Fred was undrafted. Marcus Hall was not a lottery pick. Serge Ibaka, I think was like the back half of the teens. So yeah, the lottery stuff doesn't matter to me. Um, Yabut says, but is Ochai worth one third of Pascal Siakam? God, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know how to like reframe all the trades on the fly really, but I, I don't think uh, I don't think that the Raptors came out of the trade deadline like gangbusters. I don't think they had huge wins necessarily, but they have one huge win in Scotty Barnes. And basically teams have to win, like decision makers have to win things on the margins. And it's important for like the Raptors in the summer to if they're going to make trades to try and win those trades as far as like you know, as far as, you know, signing players, you want to be able to sign guys to where they outperform their contract and do all that kind of stuff. And that that's all good. But honestly, I'm really it's. It's about like players being really good, like it's what I said many different times, but like the Bucks won a championship paying Chris Middleton the max and Drew Holiday the max. Why did they do that? Mostly because Giannis Antetokounmpo is worth like $118 million and gets paid a max contract. And like some guys paper over your roster building. And it looks like Scotty might be a guy who can paper over roster building. Um, Playoff Pierce says that Pacers pick is going to be top 14 LOL. I don't know about that. Top 14? Hmm. I'd lean no on that. I think they're losing to the Spurs right now, but I would lean no on that. Um, could happen, though. There's always potential for that kind of stuff. They haven't been blowing anybody away. And Tyrese's hamstring, I was shocked when he came back after like 11 days. I was like, this makes no sense at all for him to be playing. And then he was on like this minutes restriction and all this kind of stuff. And he's clearly insanely limited from where he was early on in the season. Like you look at his creation in these games, like Tyrese can't even get downhill. He can hardly do anything. And he's been bad on defense. He hasn't been able to create stuff on offense. And you're like, what the hell is going on? So um, the Pacers, it depends on his health probably. I, I guess I could see it, I, but hmm, I'd still lean probably no. Top 14, but I guess we'll see. I understand why, you know, the hope would be for that to be top 14 though. That would be um, very, very uh, good for the Raptors. Fantastic. That would be a win on the margins. I tell you that much. If the Pacers made that trade 
and then had Tyrese Halliburton just like completely unhealthy, unfortunately for them and for him, you know, just from the humanity side of things. But yeah, a win on the margins. Um, as far as uh, who was it? Uh, Raptors fan says, if this game's review is over, can you talk about the next game against the Pels? How do the Raps stop Zion without Scotty and maybe Yak? I'll tell you what, I will talk about that tomorrow on the Raptors show, co-hosting with William Liu. For anybody who wants to tune into that on Sportsnet. So that's that'll be a fun thing. Um, that feels like a podcast, though, for the most part. Yeah, uh, I'll if there's any questions before I get out of here, feel free to ask. And then I'll look over the roster and see if I miss talking about anything. But I think I talked about most of the Raptor stuff in this game. Um, yeah, we talked about DJ Carton. Somebody asked earlier. They asked if Jonte Porter can do the the short roll actions that Jakob was able to do tonight or that, um, you know, Kelly was able to do. And I think that uh, I think that he certainly can. We've seen it in the past, maybe not at the same level, and he might not create as big a defensive response because teams honestly might be more comfortable with Jonte catching middle than they are with Kelly or Jakob. In fact, they are, which means that the easy advantage passes aren't as available to him. But if teams do have that response, Jonte definitely can make those passes. And, you know, Jonte has to like kind of exhibit more scoring prowess as a big man at the NBA level to get those responses. And he might get an opportunity to do so with, you know, Jakob having a dislocated finger now, all that kind of stuff. I guess we'll see. The Raptors have really been going through it with the injuries, man. Like really, really going through it. I'm going to take a drink of water. It's been 50 minutes of talking. Good Lord. So weird, this job. You just come out here and talk. Forever talking. Um, We have close to the total amount of concurrent viewers. Um, While you're in here, like the video. It helps suggest it to other people. And that is how we grow the channel, I suppose. All that kind of stuff. Um, YG7 says, are there any positional needs you think we should address via the draft? Nothing positional. Pick the best player. I think that the Raptors drafted the best player in my mind. Like I know Cam Whitmore has been popping the hell off, but he's way healthier now than he was in college. Maybe the Raptors should have been able to kind of like get a sense for that. I'm not exactly sure. Um, But I thought that the Raptors drafting Grady, they drafted best player available. It just so happens that his skill set is really quite strong next to um, Scotty. But yeah, I think you just got to draft best player available. I don't think you go into a draft picking, you know, players based on like, okay, what do they do now? Because Kawhi Leonard grew into like a a scoring star. Nobody thought that was going to be the case. Scotty Barnes is a scoring star. You know, like he's at 19.9 points per game. And... You know, like, wow, people did not think he would score the ball like that. People thought he would be good. You know, the Raptors definitely, it surprised people when the Raptors took him fourth. But like other people were like thinking fifth or sixth, you know, Slomo says thinking by position got the Raptors a Raujo. You know, I wasn't really into the Raptors enough at that point in time to know like the, what the Raptors were thinking or what like fan sentiment was. So I don't know exactly but definitely picking him over like Iguodala. You just go back to like Wikipedia. And I used to do this all the time with friends, but you go to Wikipedia and you just like go year by year, the draft and look at who got drafted and where. And Raujo definitely, or Rujo, he's, he, he, he pokes out. He also kind of looks like Blake Murphy. Although Blake looks like a lot of like white slash spicy white slash like bearded white guys. Also, that was like, uh, what was it? On the Darko's um, introductory press conference, I think it was, uh, I was standing up on the, the is it CTV or global news live stream. And then somebody sent me a screenshot of just like, somebody commented, they're like, Andrew Tate question mark. I was like, damn it. What is with bald guys all looking like? Also, that was like, I was at a, way back in the summer, I was grabbing an iced coffee from McDonald's. And there's this young group of kids and oh my God, it was really at my expense, but it it was really funny. Um, (laughs) I was grabbing an iced coffee and I was just walking around. 
And then this kid was like, who let Andrew Tate out of jail? I was like, man. And I am deeply anti-Andrew Tate. But it's funny. I, I understood why they're laughing. I just had to take my L and exit the restaurant and, you know, finish my walkout and try and enjoy the sun and my iced coffee, all that kind of stuff. Um, Coco says, regarding the Pelicans, did you see the clip of Trey Murphy's mom asking him about free throws? I did not see that. I'm a huge fan of Trey Murphy. I think he's one of the coolest young players in all of the NBA. And uh, that's my Trey Murphy thoughts. Um, Shun Lao says, did you start to watch the 2024 draft? This draft feels like even weaker than 2013. Hmm. I, uh, I'm i not like super caught up on the draft. And, and honestly, like this is, I zero in on a couple guys and then I get really good evals on them. I think I'm good enough to do scout work. Um, but I, I need my scout friends to like direct me. I just don't have the, the wit or the, like the breadth of like watching guys, understanding the competition level and all that kind of stuff, uh, to like really understand that kind of stuff. I, I need my friends, my professional friends to like direct me towards a player. And then I start looking, which is what happened with Grady. As far as like the overall strength of the draft, of course, I see everybody talking about it. Um, actually we didn't get to do it while Josh was in Mexico, but we soon I'll do a, a draft podcast with Josh and we'll kind of talk about like the range of picks that the Raptors have. And we'll talk about prospects in that range. So I think Josh comes back to Toronto in the next couple of weeks. We'll probably sit down right here and do probably not alive, but we'll, we'll talk about a bunch of guys. So stay tuned for that. And Josh really is the best. So it'll be great. Um, Jingpeng says, I wonder if there was a draft that was said to be a dud, but some gems were found in it. Dot, dot, dot. Seems too black and white to just say no one in this draft is good. Yeah, well, 2013 had Giannis, right? Um, Oladipo, if not for injuries, I think would have been like an all-NBA level guard for probably like three or four years. And I think that people are too black and white about drafts in general. And of course, I'm not saying that about Shun Lao. Like that could just be your, um, like your opinion. You might watch like a hell of a lot of draft stuff, Shun Lao. Um, as far as like weaker draft than 2013, 2024, I'm not, you know, um, I'm not doubting your bona fides or anything like that. You could be right. And I don't know enough to say whether or not, but um, I think that um, uh, Jingpeng is hitting on something correct in that. I think people can sometimes be too black and white about like a draft being good or bad. Um, because on the one hand, it's like, well, yes, if it's a really good draft, then there's an expectancy for more teams than usual to hit on a player. Um, but if your team is good at drafting, you should expect your team to pick a good player in every draft. And so no draft is bad or good. It's just like you're going to find the guy. Um, and the hope is that the Raptors get back to that spot because the Raptors famously were plucking guys out of the late first that ended up being all NBA, you know, OG, if he had not been injured, would be in the running for defensive player of the year, all that kind of stuff. Um, and Pascal, all NBA, Fred, obviously making an all-star team, getting a big bag from undrafted Norman Powell. Like you just need your team to go in and win the draft stuff. So, you know, Coco says they are evaluating people like commodities. That's why it's so black and white. I, I think that, yeah, that's, that's kind of like the always the thing about sports is like the language always kind of mimics, you know, commodification. Um, and when you're discussing a wide swath of like 60 potential players, I understand why people use like those efficient terms, even if it's not correct. Luckily for me, I don't do draft work and I talk very specifically about like one player at a time. And then so it can be like hyper humanized and like all that kind of stuff. But yeah, definitely people when they're trying to like efficiently discuss things. Um, economic speak, economy speak comes in very quickly. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff. Um, yeah. YG7 says this draft is not big on star talent, but there's definitely some interesting prospects. I guess we'll see. We'll see. Luca says good luck on the show tomorrow. Thank you very much, Luca. I'm going to take that as the... The exit sign here to everybody listening. Yes, tune in. And, you know, not everybody has cable. You know, I'm not waging a war against, you know, the, the non-cable class. Don't worry, I'm with you guys. Um, as far as uh, if you have to watch it on YouTube after it's released there, uh, make sure to show out, poke some fun at me, all that good stuff. Um, but I'm excited for it. 
it's a cool thing to be able to do. And so while I love doing this, um, being able to go to like a big platform and like co-host, you know, um, Canada's honestly the, the biggest basketball show in Canada. Very, very nice. Very cool. I'm excited about it. So thank you to Will. I'll obviously thank him and talk to him tomorrow, all that kind of stuff. Um, big, big shout out to, I guess, the program for having me on. I'm excited for it. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to support this video, feel free to like it. Feel free to subscribe to the YouTube channel. And if you have the means, How Raptors Republic Survives as the titans of sports media and media in general keep laying people off and closing the doors and all this kind of stuff, we survive through a subscription model. And if you have the means, you want to subscribe, help support myself and all the other burgeoning writers and talkers over at RaptorsRepublic.com. Thank you so much. And whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.